Our scripture lesson today comes from Paul's letter to Thessalonica, his first letter. Let's share in God's good word together. We can tell you with complete confidence we have the master's word on it that when the master comes again to get us, those of us who are still alive will not get a jump on the dead and leave them behind. In actual fact, they'll be ahead of us. The master himself will give the command. Archangel thunder, God's trumpet blast. He'll come down from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise. They'll go first. Then the rest of us who are still alive at the time will be caught up with them into the clouds to meet the master. Oh, we'll be walking on air. And then there will be one huge family reunion with the master. So reassure one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Scripture calls us to be light in the darkness. To let our light shine. In the first words written in our New Testament, Paul called a small group of new Christians to be children of the light. 2,000 years later, the first letter to the Thessalonians still offers powerful guidance for us today as we live as people of the light. You are people of the light. Jesus says you are the light of the world. Well, if that's so, how do we live it out? Paul's letter to the early church in Thessalonica is a good attempt at teaching us how to live. How they should live, his new church plant that was just a few weeks or months old, and how we can put that into practice today. So this is our third week in our sermon series, People of the Light. And so as a way to kind of catch us up and remember where we've been, uh, let me do that right now. In terms of context, uh, Paul travels from Antioch to Thessalonica and starts a church in less than 100 days. Some scholars think it was as quick as three weeks and others maybe three to four months. In any case, most likely less than 100 days. That's a very fast church start. And so the journey goes like this. Antioch is down here at the right. Jerusalem's going to be down here. And from Jerusalem up and over through Turkey, Ephesus is right here, and all on up, the first time the gospel gets into Europe at Philippi, and then over here to Thessalonica, it's more than 900 miles. That is a long journey. And what would possess someone to do that, to, to walk that, to get on ships, and to spread the good news of Jesus? Well, Paul had figured out that he had been wrong about a lot of things for a long time. And God got a hold of him. Jesus looked at him and said, Paul, what are you doing? And Paul said, well, who are you? And Jesus says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And Paul wanted to tell the whole world that he had found the Messiah, that Jesus was who he said he was. And Paul was living full out for him to let all the world know that he had found the Messiah. And so as we zoom in on the map um, from Philippi here, 90 miles southwest is Thessalonica. And Paul is getting roughed up. Every time he preaches, he's getting run out of town, uh, stoned, beaten, flogged. And he goes from Philippi to Thessalonica. And then by the cover of night, um, the, there's a mob that comes to Jason's house. And they, uh, he escapes over to Berea. And then from Berea, he hops a ship all the way down to Athens in the area of Achaia and to Corinth. 
And so Paul hangs out in Corinth for about 18 months, about a year and a half. And he sends Timothy back up to Thessalonica to find out what's going on. And he, he sent him there to encourage the new church there, the believers there. He sends Timothy, his associate, um, to find out how is that little church plant doing. And this church plant is in a very strategic point in the history of the world. It's on a road known as the Ignatian Way or the Via Ignatia. And from Istanbul, Turkey, all the way really to Rome over here in Italy is this Via Ignatia or the Ignatian Way. And right here in the middle is Thessalonica. It's a major port city. You can see you can get there by sea or by land. And everything from east to west goes through Thessalonica. William Barclay writes about it like this. He says, East and West converged on Thessalonica. It is impossible to overstress the importance of the arrival of Christianity in Thessalonica. It was crucial in the making of Christianity into a world religion. Because that via Ignatia allowed the gospel to spread throughout the world. And Thessalonica was at the heart, right in the center of that traffic. And it went to all the world. Thanks be to God. So in week one, we learned... That while everyone is criticized, Paul was certainly criticized, the early church was certainly criticized, we are not to attack back. Will you say that with me? We are not to attack back. Well, so how did the early church do it? The early church responded to criticism with joy in spite of great suffering. Friends, did you know that? You can be a joyful person. You can be a happy person. You can live with joy and full out for God even if you're criticized. Paul writes it like this to the early church. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For in spite of persecution, and persecution, by the way, uh, is normative in the Christian life. It's not exceptional. In spite of persecution, you received the word with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in that region known as Macedonia, uh, by Thessalonica, and in Achaia, uh, down by Corinth and Athens. I love this quote from Albert Hubbard. He says this, The only way to avoid criticism is to do nothing, to say nothing, and to be nothing. It's so easy to shrink and to shut down when you're criticized. Don't do that, friends. You're not nothing. You are something. You are the people of light. You are the light of the world. And that was week one. Week two, we learned how to be this light. How to be faithful or full of faith. How to be steadfast, trustworthy, even in the midst of persecution. So we're to be faithful in all areas of our lives. Not just some, not just on Sunday morning or not just with our small group, but really in all areas of our lives. In our minds, with our bodies, and in our relationships. We want God to heal all of that, to make that right, to make it shalom, nothing missing, nothing broken. And because this is who we are now in Christ, with Christ living in us, we are never to take advantage of a person who has less power in the situation. And at that time, that's the way the world worked. If you were a man in Jesus' day, if you were under Roman authority, then basically you could do whatever you wanted to whoever you wanted as long as they were of lower social standing. Women had no rights. Children had no rights. And it was a mess. And so Paul was writing back to the early church, not so with you and not so with us, Acts 2 friends. Nope, we're never going to take advantage of people, uh, period. But especially not those who don't have the power to defend or speak up for themselves. And so Paul writes it very clearly. He says, no one wrong or exploit a brother or sister. No one. That's, that's not who we are. It's way beneath the people of God. So we're just not going to do that. 
And, and Paul goes on. He says, he says you know, we're not going to gossip. We're not going to talk about other things. We're not going to look at everybody other's lives. We're going to look at ourselves and we're going to ask God for forgiveness and we're going to ask God for power and ask God to give us the strength to live for him. A different way that he says it is we're to mind our own business and to make an acceptable impression on outsiders. Friends, this is the earliest writing in the Christian church. This is the first document that we know of, probably written in about 50. So it's only been about 20 years since Jesus died and was resurrected. And so Paul writes it to the church like this. He says, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, your own business, and to work with your hands as we directed you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders. Friends, it was so important then and now that we live a life of purity and of faith and of generosity and of grace so that those who don't yet know the Lord will come to know Him as loving and kind and generous and good. Behave properly toward outsiders, people not of faith, and be dependent on no one. So this week, Paul faces a really troubling question from the early church. What happens when people die and at the end of time? Because again, this is just about 20 years after the life of Christ. And so they didn't really know what to do uh, when some of their members started to die. They didn't know what would happen because they were waiting for Jesus to come back. So Paul writes back to them. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died. He hears from Timothy. They don't know what's going on because they thought Jesus was coming back. Some have died. What happens to them? Do do they get to go to heaven or do they miss out on the promises of God because they've died before Jesus has come back? What do we do with that? They ask Paul. And Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed. Listen up about those who have died so that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. No, because of Jesus, we have hope. They could have hope and we can have hope. And here's the thing. He's not saying don't grieve. No, we're going to grieve. We're going to mourn, but we're going to mourn as people who have hope. So those of us who mourn, and we do, uh, we've lost some really wonderful people in our church family this year, people that we love dearly, and we're going to mourn them, and we mourn them in hope because mourning is the price we pay for loving. Paul writes it like this. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. You don't have to worry because Jesus is risen from the dead. And because he lives, you will live also. That's what Jesus says. And again, mourning is good because mourning is the price we pay for loving. And the deeper our grief, it simply lets us know the deeper our love was for those people that have been a part of our lives. And so never be afraid of your tears, friends. Never be afraid to mourn and grieve. It's simply an expression of how deeply you loved your friends. So then they have another question. Well, we've had people who have died. Christ says that he's coming back. He's not back yet. What are we supposed to do about this? What will the end of the world look like? When Jesus comes back, when God comes back to earth, what happens? This is known as eschatology. And eschatology is the study of the last things or questions about the end of the world as we know it, the end times. And, and friends, this is something we believe in. We don't talk about it a lot because Jesus says no one knows when that's going to happen. And so don't, don't lose your life to that. But we do. Every week when we gather here, we say this in our dream, that our dream is to create a people who sing God's praises. We do that. Serve God's children. We do that here and all over the world. And share God's salvation by our witness, by our words, by our actions, until Christ comes again. Yes, the world we live in is broken. It's not perfect. It's not made right completely yet. That will happen when God 
returns, when Jesus comes and makes all things new. And it's a pretty confusing concept because it's the end of time, but it's also not the end because it's renewed. God takes anything that's broken or diseased and heals it up and makes all things new, makes it right, makes it good. And we're still waiting on that day. So we live in the in-between time between Christ's resurrection and ascension and the time that he comes back. And so Paul is writing this to encourage the believers then and now to keep going, hold on to hope. So early Christians, though, believed in, in some ways that many of us do not, that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. So when they said Jesus was coming back, they thought Tuesday, not someday, but, you know, within the next 10 days. That's how they thought of it, because many of them had known people who had known Jesus, eyewitness, firsthand accounts. Because, again, this is written in 50, only about 20 years after Jesus ascended. And Jesus actually says something very important about himself, which made people think that this was going to happen. This is found in Matthew 16, Jesus says, For the Son of Man, a name Jesus uses for himself, is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, of course they're going to think they're going to see him because Jesus said that they would, or at least that's how they understood it. Uh, Other scholars understand this differently, but certainly there are people, as you read this, they would think, well, Jesus must be coming back any day. Abraham Smith, a New Testament professor, he says it like this. He says, it is likely that the Thessalonians honestly thought that the parousia would come before any of their fellow believers died. And the parousia is simply um, when Christ comes again. And so they, they didn't know what to do. And so they thought he was going to come back before any of their believers died. Some of them died. And they, they say to Timothy, back to Paul, what do we do? What happens to them? What happens to us? So the Thessalonians wondered whether those who had died before Christ's return would be excluded from the life of the resurrection. Now, we don't think about that when our loved ones die. We know that they're going to Christ. We know that they wake up to the beautiful, wonderful face of Jesus who judges the living and the dead, and he welcomes them. He invites them in. And I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. That's to say that we choose it, that we know that God's will is that all should be saved, that that there would be no one to perish. Uh, We know that from the scriptures. And so think about this. Paul answers the question about what happens with poetry and colorful imagery of a complete transformation of the world. So they want to know what happens Uh, to those who have died before, and what happens when Christ comes again. And because it is really beyond our comprehension, other than we know everything will be transformed for good, that justice will reign, and things will be made right, how do you describe that? How do you write a letter that lets people know that? Well, you depend on imagery um, and sort of metaphor and things that they might know in their culture. And so Paul writes it like this. He says, For this we declare to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. No, they're going to be with Jesus already. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, and with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, well, who knows what an archangel's call sounds like? They didn't know that. And the sound of God's trumpet, well, there's a shofar, but do they mean that, or, or like a, a million 
trumpets with God, they don't know, will descend from heaven. All they know is that when they talk about God, they talk about heaven. And in the Jewish tradition um, and in the early church, they had multiple levels of heaven. Like heaven one was like from the land to the clouds. Heaven two was like from the clouds uh, to the stars. And heaven three was all the universe. And so when they thought of God, they thought of God kind of up there or in the clouds. And so Paul writes, and the dead in Christ will rise first. You don't have to worry about them. They will be with Christ. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord because they think of God in the clouds. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Don't worry, friends. We'll be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. These would be words of encouragement, not words to frighten us. And it really does pain me um, that a number of years ago, the Left Behind series had so many people so upset for so long, worried about the rapture, worried about what will happen, as if somehow, somehow you, you come home and your parents have gone on to heaven and you're like in a really bad theological home alone. That, that is not what Paul is doing here. That's not what he's saying. This is to encourage you and to bless you and to give you hope that those who have died are now with Christ. And when Christ comes back, they and Christ will welcome you home to the family reunion. That's what we're to know. N.T. Wright puts it like this. He says, little did Paul know how his colorful metaphors for Jesus' second coming would be misunderstood two millennia later. And it certainly has been. And it's caused a lot of angst and heartache, particularly in the last hundred years, um, when many of these ideas came to the fore about things like the tribulation and the rapture and, and the second coming. And when people try to say that they know when that is or how that's going to happen, just know um, that they're, they're deep weeds, friends, because they're saying that they know things that Jesus said he didn't even know himself. So we have to be really careful uh, when we start to talk about these things and, and look at what the Scripture says and not what other people make the Scripture say. And so one of the things that Paul wants to say right up front is, yes, those who have died, they're with Jesus. Don't worry about it. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And so when they die, they go be with Jesus. And the dead in Christ are already with Jesus. And then when Jesus comes back, they're going to come back with him. And they're invite us to the, the, all the rest of us to the party. That's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. So when Jesus comes, all the communion of saints, all the people who have gone before us, all the love that has gone before you will come to welcome you home. And again, N.T. Wright says it like this. At Jesus' coming or appearing, those who are still alive will be changed or transformed. And that's great news, friends. So that their mortal bodies will become incorruptible, deathless, right? Death is no more, right? Sickness, no more. This is all that Paul intends to say in Thessalonians. That's it. That when Jesus comes, you and I will be changed, transformed. And and whatever body we have, it's never going to die. It's going to look different. Um, it's going to be wonderful, it's not going to have any pain to it, and it's going to work great. I can't wait for that day. So, whether we are dead or alive, when we see Jesus, we are invited to the family reunion with the Master. So it's the Master's table, the Master's food, the Master's rules. And if you want to be there, you can be there. But make no mistake, friends, Jesus is in charge. So, Paul says, we can tell you with complete confidence, 
we have the master's word on it. That when the master comes again to get us, those of us who are still alive will not get a jump on the dead and leave them behind. In actual fact, they'll be ahead of us. The master himself will give the command, Archangel thunder, God's trumpet blast. He'll come down from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise. They'll go first. Don't worry about them. They're great. Then the rest of us who are still alive at the time will be caught up with them into the clouds to meet the master. Oh, we'll be walking on air, Paul writes. And then there will be one huge family reunion with the master. So reassure one another with these words. So in short, don't worry. Be encouraged. Really, you don't have to worry. God has it handled and he loves you and everyone that you love. Be encouraged. He writes it like this. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's what the letter is meant to do. So what do we do with this language that says, and we're going to be caught up in the clouds. Uh, some of you may have read books or seen uh, illustrations of people like being snatched up and, you know, you're coming home from school and then one, you know, one person flies up and another person doesn't. That is not what Paul means. In the first century, when a king or emperor returned or visited a city, you know, think of like big epic movies where kings go out to battle and they come back or they go to visit another town. What happens? Well, the citizens, right, a welcoming party, they go out to meet him in the open country. And then they escort the king or the emperor back into the city for a huge reception. They want to make sure, one, that they're not at war with the king. They want to make sure that it's, it's a friendly king or emperor. And they want to make sure that everything's prepared. Because more than likely, the king or emperor had a lot of power and control over the entire city. So you wanted it to go well. So kings never just you know, just walked into a city. That was not normative. What was normative was they would wait outside. And then emissaries from the city would come out. Oftentimes they were walled up. They would go out. They would talk to them. And, you know, everybody's watching like, how's that going to go? If it goes well, then they all come back together for a big party, a big celebration. Well, how is God going to do that? How does Jesus go to heaven and then come back? How, does, how is he going to welcome, um, you know, the world? Well, in the Bible from Moses at Mount Sinai, when he gets the Ten Commandments, uh, or the cloud by day, or the pillar of fire by night, all the way to the ascension of Jesus. You know, he goes up into the clouds. God has always been associated with the sky and with clouds. So that's how we think of God. That maybe that's how you even think of God today. We know that heaven is where what God wants done is done. Um, but it's also true that, you know, normally if you're watching a cartoon or something illustrated, there's going to be some clouds, maybe some angels with some wings. That's how a lot of people have always thought of God. So Paul's image, N.T. Wright says, Paul's image of the people meeting the Lord in the air should be read with the assumption that the people will immediately then turn around and lead the Lord back to the newly remade world. So we don't need to worry about people being snatched up into the sky and disappearing. No, they're part of the emissary, a part of the citizens going out to welcome the king, turning around and coming back into the city for the huge family reunion, for the beautiful banquet table with enough food for everyone. One of the images of paradise, when you, you may remember that Jesus says to the thief on the cross, I tell you, truly, you'll be with me today in paradise. Paradise was the king's garden. And the king's garden was a place uh, where the emperor or the king had everything you might ever want to eat. Every fruit, every vegetable, um, animals that were tasty, you name it, the king's garden had it. And that Paradise in the King's Garden was the place where things were awesome, and that's what you wanted to be a part of. And so, when does this happen? When will Christ return? And how do you know? 
Well, here's the main thing I want you to know. Jesus, our master, he says he doesn't know. So if Jesus doesn't know, nobody knows, right? Jesus says he doesn't even know. In Matthew 24, he says it really clearly. But about that day and hour, the day of the Lord, no one knows. Neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, Jesus speaking about himself, but only the Father. Will you say that last part with me? Only the Father. And so if you have a a preacher or a cousin or an uncle or somebody else that says, hey, you know, I know exactly when the world's going to end. Well, they're doing better than Jesus, and I wouldn't trust it. I've lived long enough where people said the world was going to end at Y2K in the year 2000. Uh, People said the world was going to end in 2001. Um, After 9-11, the world has said, you know, the world's going to end Every generation, somebody said the world's going to end. And it, it comes around pretty much every year. Somebody says, oh, this is it. The world's going to end. Jesus says, no. No, only God the Father knows that. And in every generation, for more than 2,000 years, some people thought that they were living in the end times. You can look through literature and one group or another thought, well, this is it. From the time of Jesus all the way to today, There's always been somebody saying, well, this is it. This is the end of the world. So while we can't know the time, Paul says we can prepare and stay alert. How do you do this? Well, you love God and you love others. And you make things right as as best you can, as far as it depends on you. Paul urges the early church to keep awake. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Nope, we sure don't. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Isn't that true? If, if, (laughs) think about this. If a burglar said, hey, I'm going to come rob your house at two o'clock, you're probably going to call the police and say, could you be here a little before two? Because the burglars say that's when they're coming. Well, yeah, it, it doesn't work like that. So, again, Jesus says this in Matthew 24. Therefore, you also must be ready. Be ready, friends, for the Son of Man, the name that Jesus uses for himself, is coming at an unexpected hour. You're not going to know. So Paul writes that the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly. He simply mirrors the words that Jesus has said. He says, I don't think, friends, that I need to deal with the question of when all this is going to happen. You know as well as I that the day of the Master's coming can't be posted on our calendars. He won't call ahead and make an appointment any more than a burglar would. About the time everybody's walking around and complacent, congratulating each other. We, we've sure we've got it made. Now we can take it easy. Maybe you felt like that. It's just then, suddenly, everything will fall apart. It's going to come as suddenly and inescapably as birth pangs to a pregnant woman. Uh, this was a way that they talked about unexpected time. Um, you know? The baby comes when the baby comes. Nobody knows exactly when that's going to be. And so Paul is is really doubling down on this unexpected time, this suddenly, suddenly, suddenly God will come again. And you won't know when that is. But he says this too. Don't let the day of the Lord surprise you. Be ready. Stay alert. Keep awake. So when they say, Paul writes, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction, there it is again, will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And there will be no escape. But you, beloved, are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light. That's right. You are the light of the world. You are children of light. You are people of the light. 
children of the day, Paul writes. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. When Adam Hamilton uh, preached this series a, a number of weeks ago, he said, you know, we're supposed to live like we might be in the end times all the time. I think that's pretty great. We're supposed to live like we might be in the end times all the time. Think about that. What would you do if you knew that you really were living in the end times? Well, that's a great way to live. But as we do that, don't guess. Don't guess when that's going to be. Don't tell your friends and neighbors, hey, you know, I've got this secret knowledge. God told me that the world's going to end on Wednesday. Don't do that. Millions of people before you have gotten it wrong, and the likelihood of you getting it right is super slim, like 0%, because Jesus says only the Father knows. And so the early church in Thessalonica, they struggled with this so much, Paul actually had to write them a second letter. Now, we're not going to go all the way through Second Thessalonians in this series, but just know that he had to. He had to write back to them. So Paul writes a second letter to correct the impression that the day of the Lord had already arrived. Paul's like, no, it hasn't arrived, and, and, you know, and we're not going to know the time. So he writes this in the second letter. He says, as to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as though from us to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. So, no, it's not. It hasn't come. Let no one deceive you in any way. People have been trying to do that for more than 2,000 years now. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed. Well, who's the lawless one? This is where we get the idea of the Antichrist. You may have heard people uh, say, oh, that person's the Antichrist or that person was the Antichrist. Well, friends, the Antichrist has not come yet and we're not to guess at it. So the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed. The one destined for destruction Well, what does the Antichrist or the lawless one do? Well, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. Well, we may have known public figures like that, but it doesn't make them the Antichrist. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. Which is, of course, something that the emperors of Rome did. But I want you to think about this. For the last 75 years, some religious group, some church group was sure that every Every U.S. president was the Antichrist. A number of years ago, around here in Oklahoma, I would hear it pretty regularly. Oh, Obama, he's the Antichrist. I heard that from the people who were politically right. Well, you may have guessed, the people on the political left over the last number of years said, no, Trump is the Antichrist. And now, back on the right again, Biden is the Antichrist. Some scholars believe that even Theodore Roosevelt at the end of World War, no, Franklin Delano Roosevelt at the end of World War II, after Hitler had done all that he had done, there were people saying that Roosevelt was the Antichrist. Friends, that is not ours to know. That is God's alone. We need to be really careful when we get tempted to demonize people because there's a lot of pain and suffering that comes every time that happens. So our action steps for this week, I want to invite you to focus on Jesus and not political figures or end time conspiracy theories. That'll just mess up your life and make you miserable. So focus on Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. And Paul says this, and I urge you as well, be ready. Be ready. You never know when you might see Jesus face to face. 
You know, Jesus may not come back tomorrow, but you might go to him. There's 7 billion people on the planet. Roughly 150,000 people die every day. Be ready. Are you ready? If you knew Jesus would be back by midnight tonight, local time, what is left for you to do? Is there anything that you think, yeah, I wouldn't want to see Jesus before I make that right. I, I wouldn't want to be at the banquet table with this brokenness or, or this unforgiveness or this lack of mercy in my life. If, is there anything that you need to do before you see Jesus face to face? If there is, do it. I urge you, if it, if it won't hurt another person, please do your best to make things right so that whether Jesus comes to you or you go to him, you'll be ready. Ready for heaven, where what God wants done is done. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.